Welcome to the Open Door Podcast. This is John Creasy, a pastor of the Open Door, along with Cheryl Kellop, our new co-pastor. Um, today we had worship this morning at the farm in Garfield, and also we stream each week from the farm. So this is the recording via Zoom of Cheryl's sermon today. She's in the middle of a sermon series, or kind of at the beginning of it, second week of a sermon series entitled, I've Been Meaning to Ask, really getting at um, what it looks like to enter back into community um, at the the end of the pandemic that we have all been suffering through. Um, today's message um, really is a beautiful one and a difficult one, looking at um, where we hurt, um, many of us. Um, could answer in many ways where we felt pain and struggle over the past year and a half, maybe longer. Um, Cheryl does a great job with it. So without further uh, ado, let's hear Cheryl's sermon from today. Our passage this morning is about Hannah and uh, her infertility. She was the prophet of Samuel. Um, and uh, I just want to acknowledge before we read this text that, that there may be some people who are dealing with infertility and um, acknowledge that that pain feel, may feel really real right now. Um, as I was preparing for this uh, service, I was remembering a memory of my own pain that I had almost completely forgotten. Um, three and a half years ago, Bala and I moved to Pittsburgh from South Dakota. It was a huge move and big life changer. And in the midst of that move, we had the very delightful surprise and joy that we were pregnant again. And we had no, uh, we didn't have very many friends. Uh, in Pittsburgh, but one of the few friends we did have were, happened to be the Hagleys, who Bala worked with. And so we shared that surprise with them. Um, and then as suddenly as that joy came, um, it was taken away from us. Uh, I remember uh, the Sunday after we lost the baby, uh, I decided to come to church at the open door and I remember, I don't know what, what that, what was that decision, um, but I just knew uh, my soul hurt, my body hurt, um, and I needed the church. Um, and I remember the Hagleys offering to talk about it, um, but also willing me, willing to give me space to just be. Um, and so it's, uh, it's beautiful poetry that, you all held me in that pain and you didn't even know it. You didn't hmm. even know me. I remember BJ preaching and Alyssa singing. I can't remember uh, what the sermon was or the songs, but I remember having a space to be and to, to mourn that hurt. Um, and so I know firsthand that you all can be that space for one another and, and um, 
you can be that for each other now. And if you need to talk about it, uh, that the pain of infertility or pregnancy loss, um, I'm willing to sit with you in that pain. And I know there's probably people in community here that are willing to do that with you. Um, with that, let us listen to the word of God. There was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, and son of Ilhu, and son of Tuhu, and son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shehol, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came, Elkanah to came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shehol, Hannah stood up. Then Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant from a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Let us pray. Dear God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the story of Hannah. 
a story that is filled with pain and hurt, but we hear of you listening, of you granting peace, of you forming your kingdom. Help us find that peace. Help us to listen to one another and to listen to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be holy in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite sermons of all time is actually based on this morning's scripture. Um, it's by Reverend Dr. James Forbes, and he was the pastor of the church I attended in New York, and he preached a sermon called Hannah Rose. Um, it's one of his famous sermons, and he starts it out saying um, he thinks the name Hannah Rose is one of the most beautiful uh, names he's ever heard. And he actually had one of his granddaughters is named Hannah Rose. And the name is based off of verse nine, where it says, Hannah rose and presented herself to the Lord. Reverend Forbes talked about how Hannah's ability to rise up over her pain and to seek the strength of God. This sermon was empowering and a hopeful word. It personally was encouraging to me. That's a good sermon. And I wish I was preaching it to you now, but unfortunately that's not going to be my sermon. Now my sermon today is going to focus on the more gloomy verse of verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. We're going to sit in the pain for a moment. We're going to recognize where it hurts because as people of faith, we know we can meet God there. Our question for our sermon series today is, I've been meaning to ask, where does it hurt? This question, if you'll notice, is not, does it hurt? It's where does it hurt? It assumes there's something a part of us that hurts that there's something inside all of us that hurts to a certain extent. To be human is to experience hurt. We can't avoid it even if we try to ignore it. The obvious person who's hurting in this passage is Hannah, but I think there are others that are hurting in this passage. I think oftentimes we focus, um, we don't focus on the hurt that other people are having for for a multitude of reasons. They could be uh, good at hiding it, or they're overshadowed by someone else who's hurting louder in the room. I hope this Sunday that we don't just open our eyes to the hurt inside ourselves and others, but um, no, start noticing people that might be hiding hurt um, and being willing to, to, um, to not ignore it. The first person that's hurting, I believe, in this passage is Penina. Uh, she is the villain, but I think, so it's, it's easy to ignore her hurt. She's being awful to Hannah, and, um, but she's hurting nonetheless. Hurt people often hurt other people. She's in a system where her husband has all the power. He decides who eats and how much. And he clearly shows favor for Hannah, who's his, her peer. 
That doesn't give her a right to be cruel, but we do need to recognize she's hurting. The second person I see is hurting in this passage is Elkanah. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, sees his wife suffering and feels inadequate. He says to Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? I wonder if you've ever experienced someone you deeply love who was sad and you couldn't fix it. You just couldn't. How hard is it to watch someone you love suffer and think, I wish I was enough for them. I wish they could just snap out of it. This is discouraging, painful, and isolating. He's, Hannah's husband asks, am I not good enough? I wonder if you've ever asked that of yourself. Then we have Eli. We don't know if he is a person who's particularly in pain in this passage, but we know he's a busy man tasked with the oversight of, of the Israelite temples. And, um, and in, our, in other parts of scripture, we know his, his entire workforce, who happens to be his sons, make a lot of bad choices and disappoint him and God. So it may be no wonder that he seems distracted in this passage. He sees Hannah and assumes her particular, her strange behavior, peculiar behavior, means she's drunk. And he's ready to get this nuisance moving and get on with his day. For me, this one reaction hits hardest. How many times have I ignored the pain of others because I was consumed with my own world and assumed things about people that were just simply not true? As I read this passage, I wondered if Eli was even really transformed with this encounter. Or when he says, go in peace, the emphasis was on go, <laughs> get out of here, stop bothering me with all your feelings. In this way, um, we have a passage full of hurting people who aren't in touch with their own pain and then therefore don't really show up for Hannah in her pain. Peninnah sees Hannah's pain and reacts in anger and more hurt. Elkanah sees Hannah's pain ab about him and it's about him and his inadequacy while Eli tries to dismiss it. So how are we supposed to encounter someone else's pain when we ourselves are in pain? Because we all are to some extent. I think it's easy to look at this passage more than uh, uh, 2000 years plus and, and look back in hindsight and see these people as just wrong, it's bad. Um, and most of the time um, when we're, but we look at them and assume they're bad, but most of the time when we're caring for others we're uh, and having to make choices on the fly, we do the same things. We hurt others. We say cruel comments that are unnecessary. We make it about us or we just simply dismiss it. So I think we have to practice meeting each other's pain 
over and over again. We have to practice it because it doesn't always come naturally. So I ask again, how are we going to meet other people's pain? This week, I happened upon this wonderful children's book <clears throat> that was called Jenny May is Sad. And the book is narrated by Jenny May's friend. And these two friends who are school age children, uh, the narrator explains that Jenny May is sad, but people often don't notice. But on other really hard days, she acts out and she needs to speak to a counselor. There's this really great line of the book that really stuck with me. When, the, when Jenny's May friend said, some days are not fun. And on those days, I wait. Wait. What a deeply unsatisfying thing to do for our friends, but yet transformative. Giving one another time is powerful. What if when we witness others hurt, we choose to wait instead of lashing out or trying to fix it or ignoring it? What if we chose to wait? Often when we want to solve the problem, we want to, we want to show up and do all the things and make it better. But what if we chose to wait? Wait for that person to articulate their own hurt to give that person space. Waiting allows people to figure out what they need as, a, as opposed for us of imposing or assuming what they need. When we think of waiting and a relationship with God, we often focus on um, how we're always waiting for God, right? We proclaim in God's time, not our own, and, and admit we are anxious for God to act. But I wonder the times God's had to wait for us. God watches us struggle desperately, hoping we put faith in God rather than depend on ourselves and other false saviors. We have a God who waits, a God who listens, and a God who shows up. God waits and God listens, and God heard God's people suffering in the land of Egypt. God heard and listened to Hannah and acted. In this way, we have a God that waits and listens. You would think after uh, the year and a half of this pandemic, um, we would have gotten better at waiting for each other. But I think the opposite is actually true. We have, been, we have waited in, indoors, we've waited to see our families, we've waited to go to church, we've waited to go on vacation, we've waited for a lot of things, but um, so that would make us pros at waiting, right? <laughs> now, uh, you may disagree with me, but, and I would love to hear your view, but it seems to me that we are all just really weary of waiting. We've lost all patience. I also think, and this could just be me, that we have much fewer social interactions these days and we tend to overthink everything we say or others say. And, we, and it's so, the conversations are heavy laden with anxiety that they become naturally uncomfortable. So if uh, just talking to people is uncomfortable, why 
what are the chances that we're really going to start asking the hard questions? Like, does it hurt? What are the chances that we're going to wait and, and, and allow for time of awkward pauses? Talking to people is hard enough not to have those hard conversations as well. I will be the first to tell you that I am not good at waiting. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. When Bala and I were co-pastors and I was a week from my due date with Izzy uh, and we had our annual congregational meeting and Bala was in charge of, of moderating the meeting because I could have popped at any moment. So uh, he was moderating the meeting and uh, Bala has a beautiful way of leadership where he gives plenty of time for silence and it drives me crazy. <laughs> he waits for people to reflect and respond. And I've seen it done, do amazing things that people stand up and say and speak um, when he gives those pauses, but I am just not good at it. And, um, and I was sitting there uh, and, uh, in the front of the sanctuary and, um, and holding on to an armchair of the meeting and the meeting and I was getting annoyed with how many pauses he was allowing in the in the uh, meeting and I was grasping on with anger <laughs> on my chair and a, like a whole group of people in the sanctuary thought I was going into labor <laughs> and, and elected a, a teen to come forward and whisper Cheryl, are you in labor? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm just irritated with my husband. <laughs> um, yeah, waiting does not come easy. It doesn't come easy to me. I don't know if it comes easy to you. Waiting is something that we need practice with. I wonder how you are at waiting, if you need practice. Siblings in Christ, we live in a world filled with hurting people, and it's hard to show up when we ourselves have long buried hurt. So in this moment, we are not called to fix it. We are not called to ignore it or neglect it. We are called by the God who listens to wait, to hear, to sit in the hard stuff before we rush to actions or even words. I know it is hard. I know it is uncomfortable, but all of us are capable because we are entrusted by this, to this holy task by God. So my big charge to you today is to wait. I told you from the beginning, this wasn't the uplifter sermon. Wait, because those hurting around you aren't sure what they need yet. Wait, because we have too many uh, hurting and we can make false assumptions. Wait, because God waits. God listens. Wait, because waiting just might turn hurting into healing. Amen. <laughs>